If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll see one in the pews in front of you, and it's on. We'll be in Ecclesiastes seven, which is page five fifty-six in those Bibles. Um, to the rest of you, good luck. Um, now, look, I know uh, maybe some of you, maybe many of you, were coming um, really excited to hear from Genesis this morning to get in started in this um, book that's going to tell us about our origin story that can make better sense of our story. Some of you, um, this is your first week here. You came just for that. And if that's you, I don't know how to say this in a way that you won't feel bait and switched. And so I'll just say it as honestly as I can. Um, You'll have to come back next week for that. Um, And uh, I'm really glad to hear that there's uh, sorrow over that. That means you're excited. I think Genesis is important. I think God's going to do something in us here. Um, But Um, Let me just let you in on my world a little bit. Um, Here's the why behind that. Uh, You know, preaching is this incredible thing that I, it's this incredible honor that I get to do. um, Where um, part of my job, I don't know if you know this, if if you're new here, this is part of my job. I get to study God's word. Um, And I study this and allow the Holy Spirit to press this truth into my life. Uh, all week long so that I can get up here on Sunday and give you what Martin Lloyd-Jones called truth on fire. I'm truth passing through a person um, that in the power of the Holy Spirit has the ability to change lives in a way that you wouldn't simply get from a commentary sitting at home. Um, Though I'm sure there's smarter commentaries you could read out there than anything you'll hear from me. Um, I, I deeply believe that God uses this as, as the people of God gather and open the book together and share from their lives the truth of this book. Um, I think God does something here. And so it's my profound privilege to get to participate in that most weeks. Um, and I hope that you'll see it as your privilege to participate as you get more of the interaction with the sermons here, that we're doing this together and that the Holy Spirit's meeting us here. It's my profound privilege to get to play the role that speaks a lot in that most weeks. Um, but here's, uh, this past week was different. Um, I was ready to go on Genesis. I'm really excited, um, like some of you are, about Genesis. Um, but then on Friday, our family, um, we, we had a sudden tragedy. And um, my grandpa, who practically raised me, um, some of you know my testimony, died suddenly. And um, I, I knew I could preach Genesis this morning, but it would be a dry lecture because that's not where my heart's been. Um, and I could get up here and read you from a manuscript, um, but I, I didn't want to do that. I think it's too important to do that. I think we need truth on fire. I think we need the Holy Spirit working there. And so, um, gosh, I thought I had gotten all my tears out by last night. I was physically incapable of crying anymore, but I guess you produce more in the night. Like we started singing and just, ah. Um, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to preach to you what I got. Um, rather than get up here and read you a manuscript or um, punt that off to someone else here and be like, can you read these notes? There's better manuscripts out there I'm sure you can read. What I thought I would do is preach to you what I got. And so that brings us to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Um, The book of Ecclesiastes uh, became one of my grandfather's favorite books of the Bible in his last years. 
Um, if you're familiar with the book, it's written by King Solomon at the end of his life. Uh, and so he says things about aging that I guess my grandpa just resonated with. He would say, like, there, there comes a day where you wake up and get injured getting out of bed in the morning. And it's an evil day, it says. Um, It says there will come a time when your eyes dim and food doesn't taste good anymore, so why bother? Just burn the steak, and it's an evil day. Um, Some of you, you're going to find your new life verse in Ecclesiastes right now. You're like, really? Start a Bible study. Um, uh, Ecclesiastes is written at the end of King Solomon's life, um, really, I believe, as an act of repentance for the way that he had wasted the gifts and grace that God had poured out upon his life. Um, for all the folly and injustice and evil that came out of him and his kingdom during his life. And so he writes Ecclesiastes at the end, um, really as a guide for his sons to say, hey, can you avoid some of the stupidity that I walked in? I want to help you um, live a wise life, not a foolish life. I don't want you to fall into the traps that I walked in. I had 700 wives, which is 699 too many. Don't do that. And so he writes at the end of his life to help his sons and future generations avoid um, really just the the brokenness of his life. And and that's what we get in Ecclesiastes. It's a profound book, but there's a a line from Ecclesiastes that the Lord has just brought to mind um, again and again and again since Friday. And it comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. It says this, It is better to enter the house of mourning than to enter the house of feasting or the house of gladness. Now, I know on its face that sounds absurd. Um, That sounds like something that belongs in a Nirvana album, not in the Bible. Like, you can just hear the grunge behind it. Like, I think Kurt Cobain could have crushed this. But, But here it is in the middle of the book, written by the second wisest person to ever live after the Lord Jesus to his son, saying, hey, now that I have some perspective, it's better to enter the house of mourning than the house of gladness. And um, I know it sounds absurd on its face, but as someone who has again been in the house of mourning this week, um, and if I'm honest, still is, um, I believe that this verse is true. It's something the Holy Spirit's been pressing on my life, um, that this verse is important, um, and I believe we need this verse because here's what I know. Um, uh, as I was praying about like what to do this week and talking to some pastors and mentors, like um, one of the things that the Lord kind of drew to my attention is many, of, I know I'm not alone, many of you have experienced death this past year. And so I felt like God was saying this would be an important time to start, stop and talk about this because I'm a young pastor. It does not come to my mind to talk about death often, but the Bible wants us to understand this because it's an important part of life. It's a, and so I want to have a family discussion about how does Jesus want to meet us in the house of mourning. Um, and so I know many of you have been there, so my hope is that this can help you as you navigate your own grief. And then um, for others of you that haven't been there, let me just say this. We're going to see in our text today, um, your day will come. And so my hope is that this message might prepare you and give you a framework so that when the day of mourning comes, the Holy Spirit might light these words up in your life um, and do a work in you um, that Solomon's describing here. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. I know it's heavy. I know it's not what you came for. Um, But as we get in here and look at how um, death in, in, in a strange and paradoxical way can actually be used by our good and gracious God to lead us deeper into life. I believe, I know it's going to be a heavy message, but I believe that God has an important and a good word for each and every one of us here this morning. 
Are you ready? Okay, wow, you responded more to that than you do on a normal chipper week. That was, I don't totally know what to do with that. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to read um, the entire section that this comes in to place those verses I already quoted to you in context. Solomon says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. In order to begin just trying to make sense of those verses, um, I just want to briefly place it in the Bible for you. Um, It's always important to know what genre of literature you're in. Um, Otherwise, you know, you'll you'll get to Jesus saying, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, and then all of a sudden everyone at church is blind. Um, He's saying something very important there, but it's important to understand it as he means it. Um, What we found here is that Um, this is found in the wisdom literature of Scripture. And so what King Solomon is doing here is he's using a poetic form of writing to compare two two things. One thing that's oftenly regarded as a positive thing and another thing that is commonly regarded less so. And he's comparing them. And he's saying, hey, look, I know that we all love this over here, but don't sleep on this. This is important over here as well. That's kind of the literary form of what he's doing here. So he's not saying that laughter is bad in these verses. Um, In fact, I will say um, this because Solomon writes elsewhere that laughter is good for the soul. Now, a critic will be like, see, the Bible disagrees with itself. No, it's just literary genre. Laughter is good for the soul. And he's comparing some things and saying laughter is not the only thing that's good for the soul. There's something else that's important here. So let me just say it this way. If you hear something funny in the sermon today, you can laugh. I know it's heavy. It's okay to laugh. It's good for the soul. Um, If you hear something that resonates with you that's true, you can say amen. Um, If you hear something you don't like, keep it to yourself. (laughs) See, there you go. Okay, we're practicing it. We're doing good. Um, so, so he's not saying laughter's bad. He's saying that it's not the only thing that's good. That You know how you love to go to parties and feasting and laughter? Well, there's some other things in life that are important, and don't sleep on that. Don't miss out on that. That's what Solomon's saying to his sons and to all of us that would read this today. And so um, that's, that's how I'll set it up. Now, the first thing I want to point out is he talks about this place of death as the house of mourning. Um, In Jewish culture, it was actually um, common practice to actually hire professional mourners and weepers to join your family to weep with you when someone that you love died. Um, There's a a written teaching from around the time of Jesus that says um, not even the poorest families in Israel would fail to hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman when someone in their family dies. Um, They did this because they understood that death is not natural, Um, that death is an intruder into God's good creation, that this isn't how the world is made to be. So when something bad happens, you don't go, ah, this is fine. You mourn it. You wail, you weep, you invite people in to help that. And I point this out because we live in a day where people will often say things like, oh, well, you know, death's just a part of life. It's a part of the circle of life, which... No, that's not true. That's from a children's cartoon. Um, According to the Bible, death is an enemy. Um, 
It's anti-God, it's anti-human flourishing. Uh, And for that reason, uh, when the people of God encounter death, they mourn it. Because when the enemy takes someone you love from you, that's an occasion for grief. And so I just say this because I know in our culture, we're not as dialed into this. Like Solomon could just assume, hey, we all get when someone dies, it's an occasion for mourning. But I want to press us on this because I'm not sure that we get that. So, so let me just say it this way. If you've lost someone you love, it's okay to be sad. Um, do you know the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept as he stood outside the tomb of his friend. So it's, it's okay to be sad. In fact, it'd be weird if you weren't. Uh, this is a good and biblical and right response when we see the enemy, death, taking someone we love from us. So it's okay to be sad. And some of you, you, you might need to mourn the relationship that you didn't have with the person you've lost. Others of you, you will mourn the relationship you did have and you're going to miss. Um, but whatever it looks like for you, death is an occasion for mourning. And, and, and I can tell we all want me to move on right now because this isn't comfortable for us. But the Bible wants us to recognize that this is an occasion for mourning. So if that's where you're at, it's okay to cry today. It's okay to be a mess. Um, when the day comes, it's okay to not be okay. Um, you don't have to be strong for the people around you. And let me just say this. If you're walking with someone through the house of mourning, um, don't feel like you need to solve that tension immediately. Um, I know there's, um, and I've experienced this myself, that people want to comfort you. I think it's an act of love. And so they'll try to say, oh, well, look on, you know, the bright side or look at these great things. Like, I I would just encourage you, you don't need to give platitudes. It it does not say the house of uh, sugar plums and optimism. It says the house of mourning. And so rather than giving them Romans 8, 28, which is absolutely true, that God will work all things together for the good of those who love and trust him, if you keep reading in Romans, it's going to say, actually, when the day of mourning comes, you weep with those who weep. Not that you need to cheer them up. You're not a court jester. And so if you're walking with someone through this, I would just encourage you to weep with those who weep. Enter into that. You don't need to uh, fix it. Um, And I will just say, um, I want to honor our church. Um, I think this is actually a strength of our church, um, which I've learned over the past couple of days. Um, That as I was uh, away in San Jose, when everything happened on Friday, a woman from the church came and sat with Karen and the girls um, and was just there. Didn't fix anything. Watched probably like a mind-numbingly boring cartoon. um, So that while like mom is a mess and the kids are like, what in the world is going on? She's there. She enters in. She gave Karen space to feel what she needed to feel. Last night, we had some friends come over. I told you, like, by last night, I had cried everything I had. Um, and, and I was so emotionally exhausted. I think I said two words the entire time they were over. Which, if you know me, that's very weird. Um, this church, and in so many ways, even seeing some of you this morning, like, uh, um, I, think, I think God has prepared us for this. And so I just want to honor you and say, keep doing that, church to mourn with those who mourn, to enter in and just be there. You don't have to fix it. Um, There's something powerful. Like in Jewish times, they would pay people to do it. Today, uh, in the new covenant, through the blood of Christ, we're just family, so we just do it for each other. 
Um, but mourn with those who mourn. Don't, don't feel like you need to fix it. Give them permission to feel what they are feeling without running from it. Because everything else in our culture is going to tell someone that's mourning to run from it, to turn it off. You don't need to take time. You should be better by now. And the church is meant to be the place where the people of God say, no, that's not true. You take the time you need. We're going to give you the space. We're going to enter in with you. We are meant to be the one place that understands this. And so... Give uh, those mourning the space they need to enter in and feel what they're feeling. Because these verses tell us that when you enter into the house of mourning, when you don't harden your heart and shut yourself off from the pain you might feel there, when you actually enter in, um, the house of mourning can become the path to a deeper life. Um, The way that verse 3 says it, uh, let me read it here, is... um, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Um, Now, I think the New Living Translation actually does a better job of putting that expression into English. Let me just read this. This is Ecclesiastes 7.3 from uh, the New Living Translation. It says, for sadness has a refining influence on us. In other words, if you allow yourself to enter into that space of sadness. I know it's hard. I know we want to avoid it, but if you will enter in, it will lead you into a deeper life. How? Well, that brings us to the heart of our text, verse 2. You'll probably have this memorized by the time today's out. Uh, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For... This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. What Solomon is saying is that death will come for all of us. Um, I don't know how often you think about this, but the mortality rate of being born is 100%. It's more dangerous than smoking. Um, And it doesn't matter how much kale you eat. It doesn't matter how many vitamins you take, how much you work out. Your day will come. That's what he's saying. This is the end for all mankind. And I know Jeff Bezos, he's like investing in a startup to figure a way around it. Solomon's, he was probably richer than Bezos, definitely wiser. He's like, hey, do what you can to help the world, but this day's coming. This day is coming for all mankind. Ever since sin has entered the world, this is how it ends for all of us. And while I know it's not polite to speak about this in our culture, I know some of you want me to move on. Um, what Solomon says is entering the house of mourning is beneficial because it reminds us of this reality. Because it reminds us that we are finite. That sin has cut us off from the author of life. And so just as we were taken from the dust of the ground, here's some Genesis for those of you that came for that. Um, Because we have broken relationship with our creator, now out of the dust we came into the dust we will return This is the end of all mankind. And he's saying it's important that you remember that. It's important that you take that to heart, that that your life, that my life is a vapor, that it's here for one moment and gone in the next. Because when you realize that truth, it brings your life, your priorities, and your problems into better focus. Some of you have been there. You know this is true. Um, I'll tell you this. Every time someone I love has died, it has had a waking effect on me. 
where I look at my life and I go, um, my goodness, life is short. Um, am I living the life that I want to live? Like if tomorrow were my last day, would I show up in glory and be like, hey, I'm glad to be here. I'm so bummed, I waste, bummed that I waste that whole thing. It's, it's made me ask that question. Now, sometimes when someone you love uh, passes away, the, um, uh, the waking effect will be positive. So like uh, over the past few days, I've been um, looking at my grandfather's legacy and being like, are people going to miss me like that when I'm gone? Well, I leave an impact that people are sad that I'm gone. Um, and so sometimes it's positive from a life well lived. Other times, let's just have some real talk. The waking effect can be negative in nature. A couple years ago, a good friend of mine, his father-in-law passed away. And when they were going through his stuff, um, my friend, he found some things that if his kids saw it, that if his family saw it, would have brought them great shame and great horror and great pain. And so on that day, um, we're on the phone, we're talking about this, and uh, what he says to me is, let's make a pact to just make sure that we live in such a way that our kids would not be horrified to go through our stuff when we die. Um, death has that effect on us. As much as we try to not think about our day coming, death is too painful, it is too strong, it is too unnatural that it, it kind of unmasks all the ways that we try to pretend thinking about this reality, and it really forces us with this question, am I living a life that is worth truly living? Or if tomorrow was my day, would my family just be so grieved? And it's an important question to ask. Am I living a life that is truly worth living? Because that's what Solomon's trying to do in Ecclesiastes. He's like, sons, I want you to have a good life. I want you to have a life that's worth living. And there's something about entering into the place of mourning that reminds you that you are mortal, that you are decaying, that you are headed for this day. And when you live with that truth in mind, it causes you to live in a different way. Certain problems, they're just not problems anymore. Um, but when you forget that truth, it causes you to live in a way that you may just regret. So, hey, when you go to the place of mourning, don't run from it because it can remind you of this reality. You can dial it in and focus your life in such a way that you can live a life that is more worth living. Solomon knew this firsthand. That's why in verse 4, he connects entering the house of mourning to wise living and refusing to enter that house to foolish living. What he says is if you will enter into the grief, it will lead you to have a wise life. It will lead you to be a wise person. It will lead you to have a life that is marked by wisdom. But if you refuse to enter into that grief, if you harden and you shut your heart off, if you won't go to that space, then you're going to be a fool, son. It'll cause you to live a life that is um, obsessed with stuff that just doesn't matter, that you'll get to the end of your life and be filled with regret. And so when he says, when the day comes, don't harden your heart. Enter into that house that you might have a wise life, that you might become a wise and whole and flourishing person, that you might live a life worth living. Enter in there because in that space, um, if you put in the bigger message of the book, what he's, this whole book is about God. What he's saying is in that space, God can use your grief to transform your life. This is what God does. He takes broken things and brings light out of it. You want some more Genesis? We're going to start in the happy part, then humans mess everything up, and then God enters into the mess, and he brings life. This is what our God does. It is who he is. 
And so Solomon tells his sons, don't be afraid to enter into the mess. Because into the mess, if you bring that to the Lord, he'll bring it into life. He can use your grief to transform your life. But he can't do that if you'll refuse to feel and engage with what's going on in your life. So enter the house of mourning. It's useful. God can use your grief to transform your life. And that's the big idea here. That death, though it is an enemy, in the hands of our good and gracious God, can actually be uh, used to refine us, to lead us deeper into a life that is worth living to lead us into a life that people would look back and call that wise, happy, flourishing, whole, full, for as long as we have breath in our lungs. Because he says this lesson, it's all for the living. As long as we have breath in our lungs, in the hands of our God, when death comes to those we care about, God can use this um, to lead us into a fuller life. Which is just incredible. Um, And that's the message Solomon left his sons. And Solomon breathed his last, and he died. And do you think they followed his advice on the day of his death? Um, I'll give you a spoiler alert. You can read the story in the book of 1 Kings. They do not. His son Rehoboam, uh, last less than one chapter on the throne before he does something so stupid that all of his counselors are like, please don't do this. This is a really bad idea. And the biblical narrator who very rarely shows up in First Kings is like, yeah, this was a dumb thing. He really shouldn't have done this, but he did it. He acts foolishly in the wake of his father's death. Sure sounds like he did not take his mortality into consideration. Sure sounds like, I don't know, maybe he had some dad stuff. Maybe he didn't want to go there with his dad. I I don't know. Maybe he loved his dad and he just wasn't ready to engage with the fact dad's gone. What we do know from the biblical story is that within a chapter of Solomon dying, the kingdom gets fractured into two because of his dummy son. And, And really the story of the Old Testament is more and more sons of Solomon down through the generations. Um doing dumb stuff. That's the Bible for you. And, and before you judge them, the New Testament is you and I doing dumb stuff and Jesus saving us anyway. So it's not like the humans have changed much. But yeah, Solomon's sons, they, uh, if you read First and Second Kings, they range anywhere from um, mostly or totally foolish to um, uh, sort of foolish to uh, a little bit foolish, but there's no one that's like truly wise. There's no one that embodies the whole kind of living that God designed us for. It's a cycle and a pattern of sin and death, of foolishness and folly, of injustice, of evil, of pain and death. And this cycle continues for nearly a thousand years until another son of Solomon appears on the scene. And um, this son of Solomon, unlike Rehoboam, he wasn't born in a palace. Um, This son, he's born in a barn. So you go back to Ecclesiastes 7.1, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Uh, This son, his day of birth, it wasn't very well acknowledged at all. I mean, the angels did. There's some shepherds there. But by and large, it's off in obscurity in the middle of nowhere, far less amazing than all of the sons of Solomon before him. And yet this son, he grows up strong and mighty and lives the kind of life that is truly wise. And when he becomes a man and enters his public ministry, he shows up on the scene and starts saying things like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. Um, Blessed are those who um, 
long and thirst for righteousness because he knows that the root problem hasn't been dealt with by Solomon. He knows that though Ecclesiastes 7 is good wisdom, good wisdom has no power to help us actually address the root problem, which is at our core, um, we are so bent by sin that we don't remember our creator, which is the big theme of Ecclesiastes. We don't remember the fact that we are creatures, that we are created, that we are dependent upon him. And so at our core, each and every one of us, this is why Solomon's sons fail, this is why you and I fail, we all try to live as though we are God. And we all try to live as if everyone else is a creature created to serve us. And this is why there's so much injustice and evil and uh, just awful things in the world. Because we war against each other and we fight against one another and we try to take from one another, not realizing we have a creator that's willing to give us everything. We try to be God. We try to take these things for ourselves. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and says, for those that are hungry and thirsty for a way out of the cycle for a way out of injustice and war, for those that long for peace and righteousness. I have good news for you. I came to end the cycle. I came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And this son of Solomon, he, um, after living a perfectly wise life, that never is unjust, never evil, it's the life that we were all made for. At the end of his life, he does the one thing that no one expected. He goes to the place of death. And on his day of death, um, Jesus of Nazareth proved Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to be true. That the day of your death can actually be greater than the day of your birth. Because the day of his birth was in obscurity, but on the day of his death, he hung on a cross for the world to see with a sign above him by the mightiest army in the world and many different languages proclaiming the first gospel announcement that this is Jesus, that he is the king of the Jews. That the God that you long for has come to you. They didn't know what they were saying, but on the day of his death, the whole world got the first glimpse of the message. And on the day of his death, Jesus goes to the cross and he dies in our place for our sins, taking all of our injustice and evil and strife upon himself. And on the cross, as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And so the only sinless one, the only wise one, the only perfectly good one who should not have experienced death on the cross experienced death for us. He took on our wages, our sin, our death, and it it killed him. But the day of his death was even greater than his birth because here's the good news. Um, This son of Solomon wasn't just the son of Solomon, but he's also the son of God. He's not merely a human Uh, He is fully human, but he is also God in the flesh. And so death, it can take a human out, but it can't take God out. And so by dying in our place for our sins, Jesus lets death swallow him whole. And right then Satan's like, ah, finally got one over on him. And then right then Jesus punches a hole out the other side of death. Says, not even death can keep me down. I am the author of life. And he walks out of the tomb three days later and he says, for I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever trusts in me, though you die, you're going to live again forever. And it's going to be a fuller life than anything you have tasted ever. So come on, let's go. Death is not the end. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is the whole reason he came. And so here's the big idea in all of this. If you trust in Jesus, death 
can actually lead to life. That even as you die, in the words of Jesus, um, because sin has just infected this body, it is going to go back into the ground. Even as we die, we're going to get a new body. We're going to be raised again because Jesus, the King of glory, has defeated our great enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Death has lost its claim on us. When this body goes into the ground, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And on the day that Christ returns to make all things new, we get a body back that is not marred by sin. And this is how death can actually lead us into life. That even as you die, if you trust in him, you'll live again forever with a new body. Here's, here's the, some of you are already like, yes and amen on the new body part. Um, I'm young, so let me just keep going here. Uh, you get a new body that's free from the effects of sin and death. So I don't care what kind of shape you're in. Um, you know that struggle you feel where you know the right thing to do, but you don't do it? Gone on that day. The effects of sin removed from your body. You only do the kinds of things that bring life to yourself and to others and to glorify God. That is the day is coming. And so in this way, your day of death, if you trust in Jesus, can actually lead you. It can actually, hear me on this. If you trust in Jesus, your day of death can be the best thing that ever happened to you. Because the struggle, the strife is over. And that death, which was once such a scary enemy, Um, becomes a servant of the Lord Jesus, that when the body goes into the ground, it throws us more fully into his arms, which at his right hand, Psalm 16 says, pleasures forevermore. Yes, please. Um, and And if that sounds like unrealistic, like how do you actually live in light of that reality? Well, let me just point you to the Apostle Paul, one of the first Christians. Here's how he said it. This could almost be a commentary on Ecclesiastes 7. He says in Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember Ecclesiastes 7.1, the day of death is better than the day of birth? And we're all like, ah, that's crazy. The Apostle Paul concludes after meeting Jesus, to live is Christ. It's a pretty good full thing I've got going on here. But you know what? To die, that's actually gain. The day of death can be better than the day of birth because Jesus has defeated death and we get a new birth. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Apart from Jesus, that's a crazy statement. But if you've come to know him and love him and trust him, nothing could make more sense. Because what he's saying in that chapter, he writes elsewhere, I have this tension. I know what I want to do. I want to walk with God, but I don't find myself doing it. Dang it. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin and death? Oh yeah, the body's going to go into the ground. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll get a new resurrection body. Jesus is the one that saves me. So yeah, actually to die would be to gain. Apart from Christ, that statement sounds crazy and we should put you in an institution. But if the gospel is true, that the best is yet to come, then that means your day of death really is better than your day of birth because it is the entry into a fuller life than you could ever imagine. Now, um, here's what that doesn't mean. Um, I feel like I need to say this right now. That doesn't mean that we, uh, like, uh, are eager to die. Some of you are like, are you okay? I might need to call you this week. Um, It doesn't mean, like, I'm not saying, hey, everyone go out, buy a motorcycle, and start living a more dangerous lifestyle. Um, If you've been trying to get a motorcycle and I just totally ruined your argument with your family, I apologize. But I'm not saying, like, you know, that we should go out and try to be as dangerous as we possibly can. Because if you read from Philippians 1, which we're talking about to live as Christ and to die as gain, he goes on to say in verse 22, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
Can you say that about your life, by the way, that to remain in this life, it's fruitful, it's good, it brings life. Um, So if I'm to remain in the flesh, that means fruitful label for me. Uh, Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed to choose between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And then he goes on to say, convinced of this, I'm probably going to stick around for a while because you guys are messed up and you need Jesus, and I'm, I, I need to tell you about the Jesus that changed me. So, so here's the point. It's not that we all, um, this sermon's not going to end with Kool-Aid saying, let's all drink it and go to a happier life. That's not, what, that's not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is that God alone determines when we are born and when we die. That we don't go a second, like no one has ever showed up in glory and God been like, what are you doing here? What in the... Jesus, what's going on over there? That all of our days are written in his book. He knows exactly what he has us here for. What the sermon is saying is that when your day comes, if you trust in Jesus, that can only be the beginning. That your death can be the best thing that has happened to you. And it is only when you believe that reality and have tasted of that eternal life to come that you can can truly live a life worth living here and now. That's what the Christian worldview is made to do. It says your life is in God's hands. You can trust him. Good things are coming. But as for now, like Paul, we say, as long as Jesus has me here, I want to have a fruitful life. I want to have a life worth living. And so like Solomon told us, okay, then we need to enter the house of mourning when that day comes. We're not eager for it, but when it comes, we need to enter in. We need to remember our finiteness, but also to remember the hope that we have in Christ. Because when we do, we will find a new power to live a life worth living. Not because some preacher gave you good advice on how to live a better life or to have, how to have less fights in your life, but because, here's the good news of the gospel, this eternal life, it's not just something you get after you die. This begins now. For those of you that were here with us in Ephesians, you remember uh, Ephesians chapter 1, that all who have trusted in him, he has put his Holy Spirit in us, who is the down payment of our inheritance that's coming. So for all who trust in Jesus, you and I, we have new creation in us now that we can taste of and know that life. So the reason that Jesus enables us to do what Solomon was trying to say all along is not because it's more good advice, it's because it's good news saying that because of the victory of Christ over Satan, sin, and death, you get his spirit even now to empower you to live into true life, to follow Jesus into life for as long as you have breath in your lungs. And when the day comes for you to draw your last, there's more good news. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The day of your death can be better than the day of your birth. And so my simple question in light of all of this is do you have that hope? Have you trusted in this death-defeating Savior? I mean, I'm not saying like did you check a card at church one point in your life. I mean, do you know him? Can can you say if I were to die today, I'm sure that that the best is yet to come because the Jesus I know now in part, I get to know him in full. Can you say that? Because if not, I guess my question to you would be, what are you waiting for? Where are you going to find a better offer than this? A God that knows your sin and your folly and looks at that and goes, yeah, I'll redeem that. I love you. 
I'll die, even though I have nothing to do with death. Death is anti-me. I'll take death on so I can give you life. Where are you going to find a better offer than that? You know, you'll find other religions that say if you pray in the right direction, if you do this enough times a day, you, you get some happy stuff after life. Only in the Christian gospel will you hear, no matter how much sin and folly and stupidity marks your life, Jesus has saved you and will love you in spite of you and work all things together for your good. If he is the Jesus that you trust, he'll do it. It doesn't depend upon you. Where are you going to find an offer better than that? And so for some of you, like today might be the day you become a Christian, to say, I don't know where I'm going to find a better offer than that, but now I'm stressed out about death, and Jesus sounds pretty great. If that's where you're at, I'd encourage you, grab one of those connect cards. Let us know. We'd love to pray with you and walk with you. My desperate desire is that you would have this hope. Um, If that's the only thing that comes out of today, if you never come back here, you're like, they didn't start Genesis when they say they would, but you walk out of here with eternal life, we're all going to call that a win here. Um. And let me just say this, for those of you who have this hope, are you living in light of it? Um, That's what I've been thinking about the last couple of days. What would it look like to live in light of this hope? Because if that's true, Christians should enter the the, uh, house of mourning very differently than a non-Christian. There should be a life and a light about us. The way Paul says it in another one of his letters is, uh, we don't grieve as those without hope. Now, catch that. He says we still grieve. We just do it in a different way. That there's a hope and a life emanating from us that can be present in grief that's not like chipper and denies reality, but something should be different. And so my question is, um, are you living in such a way that people can see your hope? Like, do people say when the day of mourning comes, like, that's the person I want to call? Because I might not believe in their Jesus, but I believe that they can get this space and enter the space and help me here. Are you living in light of your hope? I I will tell you this. I was thinking about this. One of my life goals is to live in such a way that my kids know my hope, not from the sermons I preach, but from the life that I live with them. That when my day comes, and that day could be a lot sooner than I think it is. When my day comes, my hope is that my kids would have no question about where dad is man, was he really serious about this Jesus thing? I want to leave my kids with the gift of knowing that, like, dad's having the best day of his life right now. Uh, we're sad. We miss him. But, but dad's having a great time right now. Um, I, I want to leave my kids with that. My grandfather left us with that. And so while I'm experiencing a type of sadness that I didn't know I had, it's not a sadness without hope. Um, There's a little jealousy in there. And um, if you have this hope, I just want to ask, are you you living that way? Are you living in such a way that your kids would know that? Your friends, your acquaintances, your family, your coworkers would know that? Because if not, here's the invitation of this text. Enjoy that eternal kind of life that you have coming right now. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is alive in you. And he can work new creation in your life. Just like, here's one last Genesis reference, just like the Spirit of God hovered over the formless and dark waters of Genesis. What's that mean? Come back in two weeks on that one. He hovers over the pain and the brokenness in your life, and he wants to bring new life. And so the 
the response for those that have this hope, I think, is to enjoy that hope, to go deeper into that hope. Don't go, grow stale in your walk with Christ. This life, it doesn't begin after you die. It's meant to begin now, so enjoy it so that you might live a kind of life that people around you would say, that person lived a life worth living. That person lived a wise life or a whole life or whatever words they would have for it. So that you might enjoy your life, so that your life might bring Jesus greater glory. So that when the day of grief comes, you might be the person that can bring your grief to Jesus and deal with it in an incredibly human way that only our God and Savior Jesus can enable you to do so that you can live a whole life. I'm not saying perfect. Jesus was the perfect one. He took care of perfection. I'm talking about enjoying what he's given us increasingly, imperfectly, but more and more and more until our day comes and we breathe our last and we get to experience that fully and perfectly forever. The forever is taken care of, folks. The question is, are you going to enjoy that now? And so that's what I want to leave you with. Because I want you to find more life. I want you to see how with Jesus, even the death of a loved one can be used to lead you into fuller life because of our death-defeating king. I want that so badly for you. And so what I'm going to do is instead of piling more words on, I'm going to pray and ask God to do what only he can do in us. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good, even when life is not. Um, I ask that you'd be gracious to me, for I am in distress. My eyes are weary from grief and sorrow. And I want to be the kind of person that can bring your eternal kind of life into the house of mourning. But I feel sad today. And so I thank you for the way you've encouraged my heart through your word, that I'm like, but I'm remembering I'm the sad one, not Grandpa right now. Um, would you encourage each of our hearts with that truth? Would you send your Holy Spirit to help us believe that Jesus raising from the dead wasn't a one-off? And that Jesus raising from the dead is the first fruits of all who believe in him. Would you help us believe that that's true wherever we need it this morning? Would you shine your light into our hearts? For those in this room that are in the house of mourning, I pray that you'd be gracious to them and that you would enter that grief in such a way that you can use this grief to transform lives. Um, only you can do this, Jesus. And for, for those who are not yet in the house of mourning, um, I pray that you would prepare us that when the day comes that you might draw these things to mind, that we might make much of Jesus in our life so that whether by life or death, Christ might be glorified in the bodies of every single person here. So make much of your son. Apply this sermon in whatever way we need. Help us to respond in faith. In the beautiful name of Jesus, I ask. Amen.